You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. A few years ago, I had a strange occurrence in my life. I was in a pretty important meeting with a group of people, and this, this really weird thing happened to me. Uh, I was sitting in the meeting and uh, just paying attention, doing my part, and, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, it, it just as a surprise to me, my big toe on my right foot spasmed. And what I mean is all of a sudden I had like this muscle spasm and my toe lifted straight up. It was, I was not in control of my toe. My toe had become self-aware. Uh, it was making its own decisions. And so I'm in this meeting, I'm trying to pay attention, and my toe would just keep lifting to the sky in a really weird position. Now, normally I wouldn't let that bother me except for a few things. Uh, not only was it weird, it was painful. It hurt really bad. And not only did it hurt really bad, once the toe would lift, I couldn't get it to go back down. And so I was now in a battle with my toe. And so I'm in a meeting trying to pay attention, and there is a cosmic struggle taking place below the table between me and my big toe. Now, normally I'm not a big fan of going to the doctor. Uh, it's not that I don't like the doctor, I just don't like going to the doctor. And so I, I normally kind of wait things out. Like I, I normally will try to get online, see what treatments are, see if I can heat it or ice it, take some vitamins, get over it before I go to the doctor. But I wasn't going to mess around with this one because I thought, if I lose control of the big toe, what's next, you know? And so I called my doctor, and I told my doctor what was going on. And my doctor said, don't even come see me. He didn't even want to see me. He said, I want you to go see an orthopedic surgeon. And see, I didn't want to hear that, because that just, like, escalated to the next level. You know, all of a sudden it was like, hey, that's outside my expertise. I want you to go see a guy who, uh, he, you know, he specializes in knives in surgery. And so uh, I called the orthopedic surgeon, and he said, hey, your doctor already called. We'd like to see you tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. So I was nervous because I, I didn't know if I was, you know, my body was being taken over by aliens. I didn't know if my big toe had, uh, you know, waged war against me. I, I didn't know if there was a major problem. And so I go to the orthopedic doctor, and as I'm waiting for the orthopedic doctor, my toe is rising to the ceiling, getting stuck, being painful. The orthopedic surgeon walks into the waiting room, which I could have swore I was in for over an hour. And he walks in the room, and he doesn't even really make eye contact with me. He says, good morning. He looks at the chart, looks at me, looks at the chart, looks at me, looks at the chart, looks at my foot, looks at the chart, looks at my foot, looks at the chart, looks at my foot. He then sits down, and he looks at me, and he says, how often do you wear sandals? And I said, these sandals? He said, those sandals. I said, I love these sandals. I wear these sandals all the time. I will wear these sandals well into winter. I love my sandals. And he smiled and he looked at me and said, I love sandals too. Sandals send me and my family on very nice vacations every year. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, your foot's fine. The problem is the sandal. And he said, you can't wear sandals like that anymore. They're not good for your feet. He goes, now personally, I love it because if you keep wearing them, you'll keep seeing me and my family and I will take your money and go on a nice vacation. That made me angry and I decided I no longer wanted to send him on vacation. I no longer wanted to be in pain 
and I just wanted my toe to be better. And what he began to describe with me is because I wasn't wearing the proper footwear, there were actually tendons in my feet that were getting tight, and what would happen is they would get so tight that they would just lift my toe up because that's what those tendons do, and the reason I couldn't put the toe down was because the tendons had to relax before the toe would go down. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because today what Paul is going to talk to us about when it comes to the battle in our lives is that we have to have the proper footwear, that what we put on our feet matters when it comes to spiritual battle. In fact, long before Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, or or Kevin Durant had shoes, God had shoes. In fact, what Paul tells us is that God has given us some armor. And he's told us that we need to have a belt of truth, and the belt of truth is important because the truth will set us free. He tells us that we have to have a, a breastplate of righteousness because the any, enemy will come after our vital parts. He'll come after our heart and our emotions. He'll come after our, our gut and our feelings. And then he tells us, hey, but you got to think about your shoes. you got to think about your feet. He says it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. He says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now I want to be clear about what Paul's doing. Paul is giving us deep, biblical, spiritual truth. And what he's doing is he's putting it in a form that we can understand. And he's saying, hey, there's there's things that will protect you when the days of evil come. When your spiritual battle comes to you because you have a spiritual enemy, there's ways that God has designed you to follow him, to hear his truth, and to know his truth, and apply it to your lives, that you would actually be protected. And so he said it's like a Roman soldier. He would have a belt because it holds everything together, so the truth of God holds everything together in our lives. He said, hey, a a Roman soldier would never take a breastplate off if he was going into battle, so we should always have a breastplate to protect our thoughts, our emotion, and our will. And then he says, don't forget about the shoes. Now, what's interesting is if you're like me, you want to get to the good stuff, You're like, when do we get to the sword? Because I want to hear about that. And Paul says, no, no, you got to take some steps here. In fact, I want you to see, if you look at your Bible, there's some verbiage there that I think is specific. In fact, what most scholars would say is you could divide the armor into really two sets of three, the way Paul talks about them. In fact, the first three, he says it this way. He says, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and for your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, that these are things that it's always as we go. That a Roman soldier might not always have his sword ready, but he would always have his belt, his breastplate, and his shoes. That it's kind of like a baseball player. He would always wear the uniform and the cleats, but he only uses the glove when he needs it. He only uses the baseball bat when it's time to hit the ball. He says there's these three things that we always have to have. Don't even think about the sword until you've put on the belt, until you've put on the breastplate, until you've put on the shoes. That we need the truth. We need the righteousness of Christ. 
We need to walk and operate in the truth. But we also need some shoes. And see, when Paul talks about a Roman soldier's shoes, he's talking about a very specific shoe with a very specific purpose. A Roman soldier's shoe wasn't made for running. It wasn't made for sprinting. It was made for two things. It was made for marching and standing your ground. It's almost like a football cleat. It's made to get optimal traction so that you do not slip and so that you do not slide backwards. That the Roman soldier's boot was made in such a way that when it came to battle, if there was any opposition, if there was any pushback, if there was anybody trying to move them backwards, they could sink their feet in the ground and get so much traction that they would be immovable in battle. And Paul says, hey, Christian, you have an enemy. And there will be days that are easy and there will be days that are hard. But when you love Jesus and as you get to know his truth and when you begin to operate in the truth, eventually you will experience some pushback. There will be days that following Jesus is incredibly easy. There will be days when you walk around thinking, man, the, the sun just shines brighter, the grass is greener, life is awesome. But there will also be days where there is so much resistance, when there is so much pushback that you'll need to sink your foot into the ground, that you'll need optimal traction, that your firm will have to, your, your stance will have to be firm because you're going to get pushed. And when the enemy pushes, he always pushes hard. Well, Paul says that if we want to stand, then we have to make sure we have a sure footing. And what he says is the only way for us to get that kind of traction, the only way for us to get that sure footing comes from peace, but it's a specific peace. It's peace that comes to us and peace that comes in us through the gospel. Paul's being very, very specific. He says, listen, if you need peace... There's only one way to get peace, and peace comes from the gospel of Jesus. In fact, one way you could define biblical peace would be this way. You could define biblical peace as calm and tranquility of soul in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Peace is calm and tranquility of soul in the midst of a difficult circumstance. See, most of us would like to describe peace as an absence of conflict, as an absence of difficulty. But a biblical definition of peace would be calm and tranquility of the soul in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Peace and calm in the midst of conflict. The biblical peace is actually unrelated to circumstances. That the world can be falling apart, but we don't have to be falling apart. That the world can be running a direction with their hair on fire, terrified, and yet we can have calm and tranquility of soul in the midst of the conflict. Biblical peace is the goodness of life that is not touched by what happens 
on the outside. That you may be in the midst of great trials, tribulation, and conflict, and still have deep, abounding peace. Now, when we talk about that kind of peace, there's really two types of peace that the Bible talks about. And the reason we have to talk about both of them is because they're interconnected. You can't have one without the other. And see, the first type of peace the Bible would talk about is that we would be at peace with God. That if we really want to discover this peace that comes from the gospel, it would mean that we would be at peace with God. And since we're telling doctor stories, I'll tell you an old story, and I don't know if it's true, but it's good. There's a story about a man that went to a physician, and he went to the physician, and he met with the doctor, and the doctor said, what seems to be the matter with you? And the man said, doc, I have trouble everywhere in my life. Everywhere I look, I have trouble in my business, trouble at home, trouble in my relationship, trouble everywhere. And he said, doctor... The reality is I'm just plain run down. And as the man began to talk about his problems and how he felt, the doctor looked at him and said, my diagnosis would be is that you're not run down. My diagnosis would be is that you're actually all wound up. It's not that you're beat down, it's that you don't have any peace. You're too wound up. So the patient asked the doctor, he said, hey, well, is there something you can give me to unwind me? Is there some sort of pill? Is there some sort of medication? Is there like a horse tranquilizer you could prescribe to me that would help me unwind at night and feel peace? So the doctor, with a smile, sat down and began to write on one of his prescription cards. And he told the man, I'm going to give you a prescription, and what I want you to do is I want you to read this prescription card, and I want you to follow the directions exactly. I'm going to give you a prescription, and what I want you to do is I want you to take these three times a day or any time you feel anxious, worried, or wound up. So the man was ecstatic. He thanked the doctor, shook his hand. He rushed over to his local Walgreens. And he passed the prescription card to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist began to laugh. The man said, what's so funny? The pharmacist said, I can't fulfill your prescription. And the man, being all wound up, said, what do you mean you can't fill my prescription? You're a pharmacist, aren't you? This is a pharmacy. And the pharmacist said, well, what you're asking for, we don't keep in stock here. There's only one place you can get that. The patient said, well, where would that be? The pharmacist said, sir, it seems as though your doctor wants you to go home and read your Bible. The man, being angry, took the prescription card back, and what it said was, is take three times a day or any time you feel wound up, I want you to read Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Which in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the man, even more wound up and more annoyed, called the doctor. He says, what are you trying to do with me, doc? Are you trying to make me mad or play with me? And the physician answered him. He said, sir, your trouble is not physical. It is spiritual. What you lack is peace. I can't give you peace. 
A pharmacist can't give you peace. Only God can give you peace. What you need, sir, is not a pill. What you need is the peace that comes from the gospel. See, the reality is if we need peace in our life, there's no other place that we can find it unless we go to God. See, and the reason that we lack peace in our life is because every single one of us has a sin issue. We're born into it. Isn't it interesting that you never have to teach a baby to be naughty? Like, you never have to teach a young kid to say no or hit their sibling or do bad things. It's just kind of in us that we're rebellious and we're sinful and we're stubborn and we care a lot about ourselves. And what the scriptures say is that every single one of us, when we were born, we were born with a sinful nature, and the reality is, is that we are at odds with God. We were members of the rebellion against God that started in the garden with Adam and Eve. And the reality is, is that we will choose ourselves and sin against God. Paul, who wrote the epistle to the church in Ephesus that we're studying, actually goes as far to say that we, unless something happens, we are enemies of God, that we are at odds with God and rebellion against God. We are even his enemy. And that when we lay our heads in bed at night, the reality is, is that even though we're looking for peace, we know that there's something not right. There's this cosmic battle. There's this uncertainty and anxiety that the God who created all things and who will judge all things, that we are somehow not right with him, that somehow we're on the wrong team, the wrong side, we're going the wrong direction against him. And see, the reason the gospel is such good news is the gospel is the declaration that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that he died as a substitute for our sins in our place. And that according to the scripture, when a person puts their trust in Jesus alone for salvation and the gift of eternal life, they are fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully redeemed. We are no longer at odds with God. We no longer live in rebellion to God. We are now new creations with new heart, with a new spirit. We are the sons and daughters of God. And that Jesus provides a way for us out of our sin and out of our rebellion. That Jesus with his death on the cross and with his resurrection, he writes a peace treaty that allows us to switch teams from the enemies of God to being the adopted children of God. In fact, the Bible talks about it in all kinds of ways. That because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the lost can be found, the spiritually dead can be brought back to life, the darkness is replaced with light, that we are no longer orphans, but we are adopted sons and daughters. That because of Jesus, we are no longer enemies of God, but rather in Christ, we have been made holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. By nothing that we did, but because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. And see, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, what happens is we're now at peace with God. We no longer face his wrath 
but we now get all of his goodness. We no longer face separation. We receive his spirit, so the spirit of God resides in us. It means that we can have a peace that covers our past, that everything we've ever done is behind us in the rearview mirror. It is finished. We no longer worry about it. It's a peace that governs my presence. I am now loved, forgiven, and secure in Christ. That whatever happens today in my present is covered by Jesus. It is a peace that informs my future. That no matter what comes next, whether I walk on the mountaintop or in the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid because he goes with me. He is my shepherd. And my God. And see, the reason that that is so important is because we desire peace, but we'll never get the peace we desire if we're not first at peace with God. And once we're at peace with God, we can begin to experience the peace of God. Now, don't miss this. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of difficulty. Peace is not the absence of struggle. Peace is tranquility, calm, soundness in the midst of chaos. One of the scriptures that I absolutely love is John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus is soon to die on the cross. He is soon to suffer for our sins. And he tells his followers this. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now the word that Jesus uses when he says peace is the word shalom. And in the Jewish culture, this is a powerful world. In fact, if you were to travel to the Middle East today and meet a Jewish person, they would greet you and say goodbye to you with the word shalom. And it's really a blessing. The word shalom means completeness, soundness, or welfare. It's just an idea of spiritual completeness, spiritual soundness, the welfare of God in your life. In fact, you could paraphrase what Jesus said, understanding the word shalom this way. That Jesus is actually saying, my peace and my well-being I leave with you. My peace and my well-being I give to you. And see, what Jesus says is, I'm going to give it to you in the way a world can't give it to you. Because the world tries to give you peace in things like title and status and possession and pill bottle. And Jesus says, that's not how I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you peace by dying on the cross for your sins. I'm going to take the worst the world and the devil has to offer. I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise victorious on the third day over all things, all people, all people. I rule, I reign. And because I've died and rose again, because the Father has seen to make it fit that his name would be the name above all names, that he would be the sacrificial lamb that would make a way, he goes, because of that, my peace and my well-being I give to you. What Jesus tells us is that he doesn't just give us peace, he gives us 
his peace. That the peace that Jesus gives us is the same peace that he had. That when Jesus is asleep on the boat in the storm and the disciples are freaking out, he goes, it's that peace I give to you. It's that same deep, rich, abounding peace that stilled the heart of Jesus in the midst of mockers, haters, murderers, traitors, and everything else he faced. Jesus had a calm about him that was unnatural and non-human. In the midst of incomprehensible resistance and persecution, Jesus was calm, unfaltering, unmoved. He remained rock solid. And what he tells us is that that's the same peace he gives to us that he makes available to us through his life and through his death and resurrection. And what it means is that we are at peace with God, then we can begin to experience the peace of God. When we are no longer at odds with God, when we're saved by Jesus and at peace with God, we then begin to experience the peace of God in our lives. And one of the ways you could describe the peace of God is that the peace of God is the undiluted, undistracted, fearless trust that God is God and will always do everything he promised he will do. That the peace of God is the undiluted, undistracted, fearless trust that God is God. And he will do everything he has promised to do. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians 3.15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now the word rule there is interesting. Because the word rule isn't rule like a king per se. It's actually rule like an umpire, like a referee. I'm a big football fan. I'm excited for football to start back up again. But maybe one of the most frustrating things as a sports fan, right, is when a referee makes a bad call. But what happens is, is when the referee makes a call, it's the call. If he says out of bounds and it was inbounds, it's still out of bounds. If he says it made it past the first down marker, but it didn't make it past the first down marker, it stands. That's why some of the famous sports moments are when the coaches try to argue with the referees, but it never works because what the referee says goes. And here's what Paul says to us. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your minds like an umpire, like a referee. However God calls it, let that rule in your heart. Whatever he says about your situation, whatever he's spoken about your circumstance, you let that rule. He gets the final call. It means that as we get into the truth of God and we discover who God is and what he's promised us, what he's commanded us to do, it means that we always let his truth get the final say in our circumstances, in our anxieties, in our worries, in our decisions. See, the, per- the peace of God begins to work this way. Because I'm at peace with God, because I've been saved by grace through faith, because I'm a child of God, because his Holy Spirit resides inside of me, it means that I can have his peace in my circumstances. It means when things are uncertain and there's a storm on the horizon, it means that I have a God who commands the storm. 
So I don't focus on the storm, I focus on my God who commands the storm. It means when the doctor has some concerns, I take the concerns seriously. But I trust that he is the great physician, the creator, the author, and the sustainer of life. And I trust that if he doesn't heal me in this life, he promises to heal me in all of eternity. It means when the job is starting to hand out pink slips, my confidence isn't in my boss or upper management. My confidence is in my God who is my rock and my fortress. It means when money is getting low and the bills are piling up, I'm reminded that he owns all things and he promises to be my provider. It means when the next step is clouded or unclear, I don't have to fret because he promises that his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That even in difficulty, even in hardship, that we have something greater than our hardship. We have something greater than our uncertainty. That we have a relationship with God through Jesus that gives us peace. And what Paul is saying is that peace is supposed to be the normal for Christ followers. That when the world is falling apart, we don't fall apart with it. The deep down in our soul level that no matter what's happening, no matter what we see, no matter who's running for president, no matter how the Dow Jones ended, no matter what's happening in my family, in my workplace, or the world, I trust, I put my faith and my confidence in the fact that God still has the whole world in his hands. And he's good. And he's promised us and told us what we can trust and what he will do. See, what happens then is the enemy has another weapon against us. So what happens is you begin to stand in that place of victory. When you begin to hear the word and do the word, when you put the shoes on and you go, you know what, I'm just going to stand in the truth of Jesus. He says to tell the truth, even though the boss wants me to lie, I'm going to tell the truth. He tells me to go against culture. He tells me to do this. He tells me to forgive, even though I don't feel like forgiving. I'm just going to stand in that. He tells me to bless that guy, even though he's cursing me. I'm just going to dig in, and I'm just going to stand in the presence and in the truth and in the power of Jesus. I'm just going to dig in, and I'm just going to stand, because I don't fight for victory. I fight from victory. And see, what Paul says next is that the enemy has another tactic to try to mess us up when we try to stand in the victory of Jesus. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 6, 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. See, what the enemy will try to do in your life is rob you of your peace. He'll begin to try to get you to question who God is. He'll try to sow in discord and disbelief in your life. See, one of the things the enemy tries to do is he tries to get us to draw back from the Lord. He tries to get us to disbelieve what God has already clearly spoken 
to us. And what he tells us is, is that the, the devil's kind of like a skilled archer, that he'll just sit back at a safe distance and he'll just shoot arrows at you all day long. And see, he doesn't need the first one to hit you, he just hopes one of them hits you. And so what he does is he'll shoot arrows like doubt. He'll begin to shoot things at you that make you question, did God really say? Is that what scripture really means? Is that verse really relevant in today's culture? You know, that was written a long time ago. Can I really trust the word of God? Or is that just somebody's interpretation? And he'll try to get us to doubt God. He'll try to get us to second guess what God has spoken clearly in his word. See, if he can't get you with doubt, he'll try to get you with discouragement. Satan will tell you things like, it'll never get any better. You'll never change. This is it for you. Why do you even try? He'll try to get you to give up. Give in. He'll shoot arrows at you that'll delay things. But one of the things we see in Scripture is that actually one of the things that happens in the spiritual realm is that the enemy and his army will try to slow down what God's trying to do. If you want to have a fun little Bible study, go back into Daniel. Well, the angel visits Daniel and says, we've been trying to come to you, but there's been a spiritual battle going on. So we called in reinforcements. We sent Michael down. He kicked a little booty. And now we're here. We're just here a little bit late. And what happens is, is the evil one will try to cause delay in your life. So you'll ask yourself, why isn't God answering this prayer? Why, why is this taking so long? How come we haven't seen what we thought we would see? How come what we think God has spoken about, why isn't that happening? And God will be working, but Satan will try to delay. And it's usually in the delay that we begin to doubt. He'll shoot you with arrows of difficulty. You'll begin to ask yourself, why is this so hard? Why is raising kids so hard? Why is marriage so hard? Why can't I get a job? Why can't I get the finances I need? Why is this so hard? And if that doesn't work, he'll begin to shoot you with arrows of depression. And he'll begin to tell you things like, it's not worth it. Don't even get out of bed this morning. Don't even try. For sure don't put on the armor today. Just stay in bed and take it easy. And if that doesn't work, he'll shoot you with arrows of temptation. Go, you know what? You deserve. It's not that bad. No one will know. You can get away with it. Just enjoy a little bit of sin and it's a one-time deal. And see, what happens is, is he begins to shoot arrows at you. And what he really wants, his desire is for you to begin to doubt or disbelieve the truth and the presence and the power of God. Now, what I want you to see clearly in Scripture this something is something I think we have to work to see. Because what Paul tells us is, he says, hey, having put on the, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the shoes that come from the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, this is a different verb. Take up the shield. He says, listen, when you feel the arrows coming, you grab the shield. See, Roman soldiers fought with two shields. 
They fought with a very small wooden shield that fit on their arm. And so when they're in frontal combat, one-on-one hand combat, it's a very small shield just meant to block a sword. But what happened is if the enemy brought in archers, that shield doesn't do you a whole lot of good. In fact, back in the day when Roman soldiers began to fight with shields that were just wooden, somebody had a great idea and they said, hey, if we put our arrows in a little bit of pitch, a little bit of tar, we can light our arrows on fire, shoot them at the wooden shields, and the fire will just burn the wooden shield down. Now, this is like if you like good Western movies, the old Westerns, little cowboy and Indians. You know, the cowboys come rolling in on their, on their carriages and the Indians come up, you know, and they begin to shoot the arrows. And so in the Westerns, they always circle up the wagons, right? And then the, 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 the Indians always do what? They just light the arrows on fire and go, we'll just burn down the carriages. Like, listen, this isn't for anybody but the carriage. We'll just burn the carriage down and once that's gone, they're exposed. And it was the same idea. So the Romans all of a sudden had this problem. Who's... How are we going to protect ourselves from arrows? So they built new shields. And these shields were huge. They were two feet wide by four feet tall. They were made of wood, wrapped in heavy linen, wrapped in leather or animal hide, and then adorned with metal. And what would happen is, is if they would go into battle and if there were archers on the horizons, they would either dip their shields in water or pour whatever they could on them to soak them. And the leather and the linen would hold the moisture of the water. And what would happen then is when archers would begin to shoot their arrows, they could put their whole body behind the shield and just wait them out. Go, hey, you'll run out of arrows before you'll ever destroy my shield. In fact, they got so good at this that like you see in some movies, that a whole army platoon of Roman soldiers could come together and be fully protected by linking their shields together. You couldn't come at them, you couldn't come around behind them, and they were even protected on the top. And Paul says when the enemy comes after you and begins to shoot arrows at you, you need to get up the shield. You need to take up the shield of faith. See, what he says is your shield is the ability or the action of trusting God. That faith is really trusting God no matter what you see, no matter what you hear, no matter what you feel, and despite of what's happening around you. He says when the enemy begins to throw the darts your way, take up the shield of faith. No matter what the devil's saying to you, no matter what the devil's throwing at you, no matter, no matter what the devil's trying to convince you of, cause you to doubt, when he does that, your response is to take up the shield of faith. See, when things get uncertain, what you need is the certainty of God. When things get difficult, you need to know about the power of God. And see, what happens is, is Satan begins to shoot the arrows at you, and this is what happens. Disbelief begins to happen when you begin to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. Did you catch that? Disbelief happens when you begin to believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs. See, what we believe is incredibly important. I remember when I was a kid, I don't think we were supposed to do this, but we had VHS players back then, and we snuck in Jaws. When it was overnight, we watched Jaws, and it was terrifying. It was terrifying because of the music. 
It was terrifying because of the angles. It was terrifying because sharks were real and still are real. And I remember living in Illinois where there are no sharks, nor are there any salt water. I remember being at my friend's house. We had just watched the movie, and we de decided that Jaws was going to get us in our sleep. That if you got off the bed, he was going to get you. And I can kid you not, we were up all night, terrified that Jaws was in the house, this huge great white shark, and he was going to get us. It wasn't possible. It was illogical. But we believed it. And you say, come on, you've done that before. You've watched a scary movie and all of a sudden you pull the blanket on. You hear a noise in your house and you flip on a light. What we believe has influence over our actions. And Paul says, listen, when you begin to doubt, you have to doubt your doubts. When things get difficult, you've got to believe what you believe. When things get dark, you have to believe what you saw in the light in the midst of the darkness. See, the shield of faith is the consistent application of what we believe about God in all issues of our life. So when things get hard, we hide behind the shield of, I know who God is, and I trust him to be who he says he is and to do what he said he would do, and I just stand. When we know the truth and when we walk in obedience to the truth, when we stand under the authority and the victory of Jesus, faith says always believe the truth of God and always doubt your doubts. Now I want to take this one step further this morning in closing. Because what Paul is saying is that as you believe, as you trust as you activate your faith, when you continually put your confidence in him, his word, and his promises, that it's in the doing that there's this shield of faith. But I don't want us to miss this, because here's what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that your faith is the shield. Because otherwise, what we would tell you in the midst of battle is you need to get more Faith. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that your faith is somehow this magical force field. What Paul is saying is it's the object of your faith. It's the one whom you trust. It's the one whom you put faith in. It's the one that you are putting confidence in that he is your shield. Now don't miss this. Because I think the imagery is powerful and beautiful. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is our shield. And to call him our shield indicates vividly that Jesus stands between us and our enemy. That when he shoots the dart, I just stand behind Jesus. That when the doubt and the discouragement and the delay and the temptation and the depression come, I put my faith in Jesus, and it's Jesus the victor. It's Jesus who already take everything the world and the devil had to dish out, and he rose victorious on the third day over it. It's the glorified, risen, all-powerful Jesus that stands between me and my enemy. And I just continue to trust him, and you know what he does? 
he takes the shots for me. That I in my armor, I've got the belt on, I've got the breastplate on, I've got the shoes on, and I go, you can't even touch me because you can't get through my Jesus. My job is just to stand behind him and continue to trust, continue to believe, continue to put my confidence in him who is my shield and my victory. So when Paul says lift up the shield, he means to rest in Jesus as our protector. He means to put our trust in he who keeps the assaults of the devil from destroying us. So friends, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.